This is the Truth Hurts program with your host, Steve Z, telling it like it is. Welcome back to the Truth Hurts program for Friday, June the 4th, 2021. I'm Steve Z, and I want to point out something that I pointed out to you many months ago during the height of the Wuhan China novel coronavirus pandemic of 2019, where artificially mandated closures in our nation's economy, thanks to gropey Joe Biden and his cohorts on the Democrat side who ran states and cities and shuttered their economies, is going to probably accomplish something through the back door that he was incapable of accomplishing through legal, normal mandates. I warned you about the made-up manufactured energy crisis of the 1970s under President Jimmy Carter, at the time the worst president in the history of the country. And I also warned you that gropey Joe Biden was headed in a similar direction with all of the closures put into place by his puppet masters at the top of the Democrat Party. By shuttering businesses, by creating employee shortages, you are now seeing lower wage jobs be forced to pay people more in order to get them through the door as gropey Joe Biden and his socialist-leaning administration continue to push for higher minimum wages or else. What's the or else, you ask? Or else he'll keep the economy shuttered and continue to pay people more to stay home with enhanced unemployment benefits than they would make by working. I warned you of this months ago. They keep people home, paying them more money to stay at home than to go to work And then there are labor shortages as the economy reopens. While people are at home making more to stay home, those who do decide to go to work are demanding higher wages because otherwise they'll just sit home on their dead asses as well, collecting more money with enhanced unemployment benefits and federal kick-ins than they would going to jobs. Labor shortages in key industries are giving workers their best shot in years to now bargain for substantial wage increases with some companies ramping up pay to attract employees. This is particularly prevalent in the restaurant, food service, and low-end, low-wage, so-called essential worker businesses. Biden, who in April cheered worker advocates by renewing his call on Congress to double the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, is most likely to benefit politically if this trend of artificially created labor shortages continues. The so-called shortages we're seeing in lower-wage jobs and the accompanying wage pressures are an early sign of what Biden is touting as a success for his agenda. But that success may be short-lived. Higher wages could be among the biggest factors in pressuring the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates as more clear and definite signs of inflation appear on the horizon. These well-intended plans of gropey Joe Biden, as he says, also risk slowing hiring for those who will increasingly seek to return to the workforce as the pandemic subsides, as companies will then try to keep costs down. That's why workers' pay was a major focus for Fed officials in Friday's U.S. employment report for May. They want to see wage gains for the workforce, but what's behind those raise increases matters. Wage growth is positive if it reduces hardship, reduces inequality, and is not eaten away or reversed by inflation, said Tim Dye, an economics professor at the University of Oregon, a former U.S. Treasury Department economist. He said we should try to be cognizant of that possibility that we are, in fact, inducing more inflation by doing what we're doing. Income growth has been relatively strong, particularly in the past couple of months, despite disappointing overall job growth. 
Wages were up 2% in May compared to a year before, and that number likely underestimates the real amount of income growth for technical reasons. Low-wage workers disproportionately lost jobs last year, making the overall average for those who kept their positions look higher, and the opposite effect is now occurring as more Americans return to the overall labor market. Anyone looking at the 2% increase in year-to-year -year wages is missing the story. This according to Jason Furman, a Harvard professor and former top economic advisor to Barack Hussein Barry Sotero Obama. He says nominal wages are up 1.2% through April and May, and that's a 7.4% annual increase, which will likely trigger high inflation pressure. The pressure to do more to attract employees could grow and continue to grow to certain public-facing industries. According to the Labor Department's jobs report, about 2.5 million people are still being held back from looking for work because they're blaming it on the pandemic. Wages for non-managerial leisure and hospitality workers grew only 1.3% last month, but they're up 3.7% compared to last year. And at the heart of the fight for higher pay is a desire for workers to share in a greater portion of the nation's economic rewards after decades of sluggish wage growth. The result of weakening labor unions, companies shifting production overseas, and the increased use of job-displacing automation, robots, and the like. This would ideally show up as bigger raises as the economy expands faster, one would think. But if higher wages are instead passed along to consumers in the form of higher prices, which we are seeing, it can create an inflationary cycle as opposed to the one-time price increase that some experts believe the economy can absorb as people's behavior and global supply chains return to normal. In the near term, I wouldn't say this is necessarily a dangerous situation if we're just raising wages for a group of people who have been traditionally disadvantaged, Professor Dewey said. But the longer there are shortages that make employers feel more comfortable raising prices as well as wages, that's when you get into a potential shift in the psychology where wage gains and price gains become automatically linked. And then you have runaway inflation. Heidi Shareholds is the director of policy at the left-leaning Economics Policy Institute. She's a former chief economist at the Labor Department. She said Americans are not seeing the widespread shortage-induced wage increases that would be cause for concerns. I think she's wrong. But she says things are renormalizing. It's not like things are out of whack. Of course, she's wrong. She says she has longer-run concerns. Wages are too low in the restaurant sector before COVID hit. So the renormalizing is not exactly where we want to be. Yes, she's in that fight for 15. But again, if a hamburger is $2 at $7.25 an hour, that hamburger might go to $4 under $15 an hour. Prices. Because it's not just the whopper flopper and the guy on the 4-inch speaker behind Mickey D's that's getting a pay raise. If everyone making $7.25 an hour moves up to $15 an hour, what happens to those making $10 an hour? Well, they too will move up to 15 and then they will no longer be above the minimum wage scale, but at the minimum wage scale. That will either drive them to become more bitter or seek another job because, after all, they were making more than minimum wage before and now they're making minimum wage. So they will either seek to double their pay from $10 to $20 an hour, which will then, of course, put inflationary pressure on those that were making $20 an hour to now want to make $40 an hour. It's simple. I want what the other guy has. And if I was making double before, I want to make double double now. The hesitance by some workers to return to the labor force is creating the illusion of the dynamic, according to Adam Uzumek, the chief economist at Upwork. Uzumek says, if employers are raising wages right now due to temporary shortages, then that risks slowing job growth when those temporary shortages are gone, with millions still out of work. 
If we were at full employment and we were seeing inflationary pressures, it wouldn't concern him at all. He added, you're getting it because of good and sustainable reasons. It's not the same thing as inflation due to temporary supply shortages. Just remember, folks, the temporary wage increases that people are seeing right now because so many are choosing to stay home will likely go away when we get back to full employment, if we get back to full employment. It seems like the Democrats and the Biden administration are very happy and content with keeping parts of the economy shuttered for whatever reason, for whatever ill-gotten reason that they have in their feeble brains. Maybe they think four years from now they'll be able to still blame Donald Trump for people being out of work. But by then, the nation will be in bankruptcy, inflation will have run away, and you and I would be paying $15 for that hamburger that we're paying two bucks for now. Worker advocates, by contrast, argue that higher wages will ultimately help the economy heal faster and supposedly more equitably. A liberal socialist so-called progressive think tank called the Century Foundation employs a senior fellow named Andrew Stetner, who said, I don't think there's any forecast that wages would go up so much as to constrain economic growth. If anything, raising wages is one of the best ways to transition the economy off of stimulus. But Ozemek said there's plenty room for optimism, saying the possibility of hyperinflation is remote. That's what Jimmy Carter said back in the 1970s. This nation almost flushed itself down the toilet. For sectors like retail and restaurants, you probably are seeing pockets of the country where it's really hard to hire people because they're getting paid more to stay home than they are to go to work. And some forward-thinking business leaders are thinking about automating rather than hiring people back or boosting their pay. After all, an automatic whopper flopper machine will work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, never ask for a day off, never show up late or hung over, never miss a day of work, and will be always productive without a smart-ass attitude. Yes, an automated whopper flopper. I can see it in our future. And what do we do with all those minimum wage snowflakes who thought they had it so good? Is what we're seeing the white of the eyes of inflation, or is it something else? It's probably transitory, but I'm going to be looking closely at the data, my friends. This is not something you want to miss. And don't forget, I warned you in advance of the truth. And the fact that sometimes the truth hurts. We'll be right back. This is the Truth Hurts program. I often refer here on the Truth Hurts program to Democrats eating themselves from within with an unstoppable cancer that lurks in the DNA of the DNC and in the mindset of the Democrats in general. The Sunrise Movement's relationship with the Biden administration may soon be on ice as the eating from within begins. The so-called Progressive Climate Coalition is gearing up to stage a protest outside the White House of Gropey Joe Biden today in an attempt to persuade the Gropey Joe president to rethink his bipartisan negotiation strategy with Republicans over the infrastructure plans that have now been proposed as a counterproposal to the joke of the Biden administration. Gropey Joe is slated to hold another round of talks with Shelley Moore Capito, the Senate Republican from West Virginia. She's the lead GOP negotiator later today. The public demonstration represents a striking tactical and tonal shift from the organization's prior approach to this administration. Despite being fervent to their push for top progressive policy ideals like the Green New Deal, the group's leaders have generally communicated through official channels within the White House only. They've kept their private anger and distrust of the Biden administration quiet. But now they're bringing it out in public for all to see. 
Their outside-in method has allowed them to build a productive relationship with some senior officials, with some people working diligently to form key alliances early on in Biden's presidency to keep radical groups such as them from revolting on day one. This now appears to be changing. The group's leaders now are starting to direct anger openly towards gropey Joe Biden, setting the stage for a potential rift in the collaborative relationship that he claims to have forged with the far-left fringe group. Now, don't expect hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of thousands, thousands, or hundreds of people to attend today's event in front of the White House. The outdoor event is expected to draw a whopping 50-plus attendees, including several who claim that they are willing to risk arrest, according to a source involved in the planning of today's protest against gropey Joe Biden. Organizers are already discussing plans for a larger protest later this month. Ooh, maybe they'll get 75 people. Though by that time, it's possible the Democrats on Capitol Hill will have already started moving forward on infrastructure legislation without Republican support. You mean to tell me 50 people outside the White House protesting against Biden would be enough? I don't think so. Sounds like a movement, a bowel movement but only a small, smelly, little turd of a movement, not a big, massive diarrhea fest like the other BM, uh, BLM movement. Before the gathering, activists in the youth-focused organization drafted a, sp a few specific demands of gropey Joe Biden. They're gonna demand something from the president. Let's see how well that goes. Get off my lawn! <laughs> They'll be asking Biden to meet with Varshini Prakash, the Sunrise Movement's so-called executive director, as well as several constituents over the issue of Biden's infrastructure plan and his caving, in their opinion, to the whims and wills of the Republicans. So-called leaders are aiming to press the president to move forward with a fully funded Civilian Climate Corps, a newly proposed program loosely modeled after a bill that was brought forward by Senator Ed Markley the Democrat from Massachusetts, and the nutjob, wacky nutjob representative Alexandria Ocasio-Horseface-Cortez, the Democrat out of New York. We'll see what happens, but I'm pretty sure those 50 people aren't going to sway Joe Biden. I don't think Joe Biden's wife, even when Joe is heavily medicated, can sway Joe Biden. When he's hell-bent on doing things his way. This is the Truth Hurts program. According to the Washington Examiner, Joe Biden is falling into a presidential trap by pressing Manchin and Sinema. His surprise dig at two members of his own party has raised questions about his legislative strategy ahead of a summer that experts expect to be dominated by his priorities fizzling on the Senate floor. The White House may have downplayed Biden's veiled swipe earlier this week at Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. But that dig by Joe Biden previews the pressure that the two centrists will soon face as their opposition to changing the Senate filibuster rules goes forward, allowing legislation to slide by with 51 votes that will stymie Biden's plan. Hopefully, Manchin and Sinema have enough common sense and value their own time in Congress enough to not do away with the filibuster. Lawmakers do not appreciate being threatened or coerced. Yet, Biden's attack on Sinema and Manchin is considered far from a direct attack. Based on the context in which Biden made his comments, 
Biden appears to be trying to manage expectations amongst his supporters and prepare them for potential negotiations and compromises. And this sentiment was amplified a few hours before Manchin told CNN reporter that he thought Biden's jab was taken out of context. You might recall that a similar heavy-handed legislative strategy backfired on President Franklin Roosevelt back in 1938 to purge prominent recalcitrant Democrat members in that year's midterm primary elections. At that point, Roosevelt targeted Senator Walter George of Georgia, Ellison Durant, Cotton Ed Smith of South Carolina, and Millard Tidings of Maryland, along with Representative John O'Connor of New York, who was then the chairman of the powerful House Rules Committee. They all survived except for O'Connor, and the episode was widely seen as a black eye for FDR, according to historians familiar with the matter. Nixon had better luck in 1970. He endorsed James Buckley, William Buckley Jr.'s older brother, in a three-way contest against incumbent Senator Charles Goodell, the father of NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. You see, these guys are all in bed together, folks. That's what, I mean, think about it. These people are all in bed together. Sorry, I digress. The elder Goodell had been a moderately conservative Western New York congressman until he was appointed to the U.S. Senate by Governor Nelson Rockefeller during the 68 assassination event involving Robert Kennedy. Then he veered far to the left. Vice President Spiro Agnew famously derided Goodell as the Christine Jorgensen of the Republican Party, referencing a very early sex change. Goodell finished third in the general election. Observers say Gropey Joe Biden has miscalculated his influence on Congress before. Lawmakers missed his Memorial Day deadline for the body to pass the criminal George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and discussions regarding possible infrastructure deals have now been extended until June 7th, well beyond the Memorial Day deadline Gropey Joe demanded. People are laughing at Gropey Joe. The fact that there are good faith negotiations ongoing and that both sides involved see them as positive is much more progress than we've seen in the past. The White House's first attempt to strong-arm Manchin and Sinema did not go well, if you remember. Back in January, Biden tasked Vice President Toe Harris with local West Virginia and Arizona media interviews over his $1.9 trillion coronavirus package, in which she appeared to try and pressure both lawmakers on air. Then, in a gaffe that hit hard on coal-rich West Virginia, Camel Toe mistakenly mentioned abandoned landmines instead of abandoned mine lands. Manchin said, I saw it. I couldn't believe it. No one called me. That's not a way of working together, what was done. Well, this time around, my friends, the White House has dispatched Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm to West Virginia for a joint event with Joe Manchin and Biden on Wednesday hosted Manchin's West Virginia Republican Senate Shelley Moore Capito in the Oval Office for infrastructure talks. A follow-up call has been scheduled for today. No word on the outcome of that call has been made public. But remember, folks, Gropey Joe Biden undercut Manchin and Sinema during a long-scripted address in Tulsa, Oklahoma this week when he marked the 100th anniversary of the city's so-called race massacre. His speech provides cover for his colleagues to do the same. I hear all the folks on TV saying, why doesn't Biden get this done? Well, because Biden only has a majority of effectively four votes in the House and a direct tie in the Senate. And with two members of the Senate who vote more with Republicans, Biden said, 
while imploring Congress to expand voter access. He basically slapped Sinema and Manchin in the face with his comment. Less than an hour after his Tulsa appearance, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki sought to undo the damage. She failed. She insisted that Biden was not commenting on Manchin and Sinema personally, but was remarking on TV pundits. Way to lie, Psaki. How do you sleep at night? Oh, your prescription meds must be expensive. Oh, wait a minute. Member of the White House staff? I guess it all comes free to you. She told reporters on Wednesday, Gropey Joe Biden considers them both friends. He considers them both good working partners. And he also believes that in democracy, we don't have to see eye to eye on every detail of every single issue in order to work together. Nice try, because you know in the background, Gropey Joe Biden is slamming his feeble fist on the desk and going, Hey, you need to agree with me. Hey, I'm the president. Political operatives and observers still fixated on the line and expressed concerns over the White House's so-called legislative strategy. In an evenly divided Senate, every Democrat vote is crucial to Biden's agenda. Manchin and Sinema, who have actually supported most of the planks of Biden's platform, have become key, pivotal, decisive votes in the chamber as advocates for more centrist policies and inter-party collaboration are being called upon by American citizens more often than not. The average American citizen does not swing hard to the left or hard to the right, my friends. They try to swing somewhere near the middle and leave the radical politics to people like Alexandria Horseface Cortez, Nazi Pelosi, Chuckles the Clown Schumer. Manchin and Sinema are uncomfortable with the Democrat dependence on the budgetary fast-track procedure known as reconciliation slamming bills through under simple majority votes rather than the required 60. They're against overhauling the upper chamber's uh, rules on filibusters. It makes sense. That will likely block the passage of pro-voting, anti-gun, and gay rights bills that are currently anticipated to be brought to the floor this summer. Veto Vets, a liberal group promoting military veteran voters, has already announced plans to run ads related to voter access legislation in West Virginia and in Arizona. When will people learn? These widened so-called voter access legislation measures are all rife with open door policies for voter fraud, widespread voter fraud. So if you want socialism, you want communism, you want progressive wokeism, go ahead and urge your congressman to pass these bullshit measures. As for me, I like doing things properly. You want to vote? Show me your ID. That way I know that it is you who is voting and only voting once. This is the Truth Hurts program. And finally, because the Trumpster is probably going to make a comeback in politics starting this weekend, Facebook has decided Trump's ban will last for at least the next two years. Facebook made the announcement today that Donald Trump's suspension from their service would last at least two years, keeping the former president off mainstream social media for the 2022 midterm elections, as I predicted they would. As the company also said, it would end a policy of treating posts from t politicians differently than those from other users. The Social Communist Network said Mr. Trump would be eligible for reinstatement January of 2023 possibly before the next presidential election. It will then take an expert panel to decide whether the risk to public safety by Donald Trump's posts 
has receded. Facebook said the company barred Mr. Trump from their service after he made comments on social media that rallied his supporters, who then stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, but it had not given a firm timeline about when the suspension would end, if ever. Given the gravity of the circumstances that led to Mr. Trump's suspension, we believe his actions constituted a severe violation of our rules, which merit the highest penalty available under the new enforcement protocol, said Nick Clegg, the vice president of global affairs at Facebook. If he gets reinstated, Mr. Trump would be subject to a set of rapidly escalating sanctions if he committed further violations, up to and including permanent suspension of his account, according to Facebook. They also said they were ending a policy of keeping posts by politicians up by default, even if their speeches broke its rules. For years, Facebook and other social media companies had said they would not interfere with the political speech process because it was in the public interest. During Trump's presidency, the companies did not rein in his language as he attacked his enemies and allegedly spread misinformation. Of course, now that alleged information, or misinformation rather, is becoming fact. People are starting to realize Trump was telling the truth. They changed their stance after Trump's use of social media on the day of the Capitol attack allegedly rallied supporters to storm the Capitol. Of course, there is absolutely no evidence or link between the two, but Facebook, being the liberal socialist media outlet that they are, will use whatever means they can to keep Donald Trump off of their platform. They're now rethinking how to treat political speech, and that has implications not only for American politics, but for world leaders, such as Brazil's president or India's president, who have both been active recently on Facebook. Yet their moves, which create more specific framework for how to handle political figures, are unlikely to satisfy Facebook's detractors and may indeed reinforce what some see as the company's disproportionate power over online speech. Mr. Clegg said, there are many people who believe it was not appropriate for a private company like Facebook to suspend an outgoing president from its platform. There are many others who believe Mr. Trump should have been banned for life. We know today's decision will be criticized by many people on opposing sides of the political divide, but our job is to make a decision in a proportionate, fair, and transparent way. Sure, sure it is, Facebook. You've been anti-Trump since day one because the leftist mainstream media told you to be, and the Democrats paid you off to be. Mr. Clegg said his moves were in response to criticism that the company had not provided sufficient insight into its decision-making, and he said Facebook was putting into place a system of protocols and sanctions to be applied in exceptional cases such as Mr. Trump's. For Donald Trump, who was permanently banned on Twitter, Facebook's action means he will be muted from the mainstream platforms at least during the 2022 midterm election cycle, just as I predicted on the Truth Hurts program. Trump, who before the bans used social media as a megaphone to reach his tens of millions of followers, has found it more difficult lately to reach his millions of millions of followers. And this will definitely have an adverse effect on his ability to communicate with Republicans and conservatives in the primary field. He recently started a blog called From the Desk of Donald J. Trump about a month ago, but shut it down this week after it had gained little traction. 
In an email statement, Trump said Facebook's ruling was an insult to the record-setting 75 million-plus people who voted for us in the 2020 rigged presidential election. He added that Facebook should not be allowed to get away with censoring and silencing him and others on their platform. Later, Mr. Trump added a message to Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's chief executive. Next time I'm in the White House, there will be no more dinners at his request with Mr. Zuckerberg or his wife, Trump said. It will be all business. Facebook said Trump's two-year suspension was a severe penalty, but it was in response to criticism that the company had not set a specific timeline for his ban and was not tied in any way to the midterm elections. Bullshit. The company also said it could elongate Trump's suspension beyond, and it would monitor external factors like instances of violence to determine if they need to do so. Facebook's shift to no longer automatically exempt speech by politicians from its rules is a stark reversal from a free speech position that Zuckerberg had previously championed. If you recall, in a 2019 address at Georgetown University, Zuckerberg said, quote, People having the power to express themselves at scale is a new kind of force in this world, a fifth estate alongside the other power structures of society, unquote. That stance, of course, drew criticism from lawmakers and activists and even some of Facebook's own liberal leftist employees who said the company allowed misinformation and other harmful speech from politicians to flow freely and unhindered. While many academics and activists welcome Facebook's changes on Friday as a step in the right direction, they said implementation of the new rule will be tricky. The company will likely enter into a complicated dance with global leaders who have recently grown accustomed to receiving special treatment by Facebook. Countries including India, Turkey, and Egypt have threatened to take action against Facebook if it acts against the interests of the ruling parties. The countries have said they might punish Facebook's local staff or ban access to the service in their nations. Pressures also come from Russia, where the country's internet regulator has ramped up its demands for Facebook, Twitter, and Google to remove online content that it deems illegal and to restore pro-Kremlin material that had been blocked. In India, officers from the country's elite anti-terrorism police force last month visited Twitter's New Delhi offices in a show of force, a sign that the Indian government has grown increasingly frustrated with the American internet companies. At Facebook, the decision to change policies on political speech began in earnest after conservatives and others challenged the decision to bar Donald Trump back in January, saying it smacked of censorship, as it did. To combat the criticism, Facebook referred Mr. Trump's case to its oversight board, a company-appointed panel of academics, journalists, and former members of government who all hated Donald Trump. They reviewed the cases, and they acted against Trump. A board ruled that Facebook was correct to ban Trump from Facebook, but it said the company had not sufficiently explained its decision and that an indefinite suspension of the former president was not appropriate. It then kicked the decision on whether to permanently ban Mr. Trump back to the corporate Facebook offices. Executives spent the past few weeks discussing and reconsidering the company's policies, and after executives were unable to fully explain the exemption to themselves, they decided the rules should not be automatic. The company still given itself a way to keep up controversial political speech in which it considers rare or special circumstances. If Facebook deems that a statement from a politician breaks its own rules but is newsworthy enough, to make the public interest, it can still decide to leave those posts up, a la 
anything written positively about any Democrat. So for now, if you're looking for Donald Trump Facebook or tweets, you'll have to look elsewhere because he's banned permanently from Twitter and for at least the next two years on Fakebook. That's going to wrap up this evening edition of the Truth Hurts program. Again, a little long, but a little lanyap never hurt anyone. Go out there and have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Truth Hurts program with Steve Z. The opinions expressed here are protected free speech under the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. We apologize if you were offended, but we retract nothing. Background music by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. Copyright 2021, the Truth Hurts Program Network.